good to be here this morning. Got a lot of people visiting, and we're just really thankful that you're here. Um, we're going to be in Acts 4. We're actually not going to talk about what Eric just read. I wanted that to be read because that gives some background to what we are going to look at. Um, our theme this year is uh, right here, Grace for More from 2 Corinthians 4. So what we've been talking about every now and then is we've been talking about grace. We've been talking about evangelism as well because what that text in 2 Corinthians 4.15 is really saying is that as the gospel spreads to more and more people, grace is extending to more and more people. So we see it, it's helpful for us to talk about grace, understand God's grace, but it's also helpful, helpful for us to talk about evangelism. Um, I think it's been a little bit since I've talked about our theme, so I thought it'd be good for us to revisit it. And in Acts chapter 4, uh, there's actually a phrase in verse 33 that we're going to touch on. Um, because Luke mentions grace, and he says that the group there, the, the all who were gathered together, that there is much grace. And so I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, first, I want to remind us of a few things. That grace is freely given. Grace is God's divine favor. So we can extend grace to one another. But when we talk about grace in scriptures, usually what we're talking about is like God's divine favor or blessing. Um, now we can, we can try to replicate that in a sense of overlooking people's sins against us and things like that. But really, our favor is nothing compared to God's favor because he is the one that has no sin, that has done no wrong. So we can understand when people do us wrong because, well, we've all been there. But God's divine favor is something very special. Grace is also when God gives or grants something that is not deserved. I think to add on to that, grace is also just recognition sometimes. Like God recognizing us when we don't deserve that. And grace is also what saves us. Um, there might be some scriptures that say other things save us. Uh, and I don't think that saying grace saves us contradicts that at all. Um, in fact, I think that when we realize and understand that grace does save us, that gives us the, the groundwork to understand other things that scriptures say that save us, like faith, for instance. We know faith saves us. We also know that faith without works is dead. Well, we can make these connections, but the, the ground level understanding of what saves us is it's God's grace, and, and we need to remember that. We need to remind one another of that. And we need to make sure that that's part of the, the message that we talk to other people about. So that's what grace is. Um, I, I want to follow up and talk just a little bit about uh, what Eric just read. So if you back up in Acts chapter 3, you have a lame man that's healed. We're not going to read any of this. We're just going to like observe it as we just talk through. You have a lame man that's healed. It says he was lame from birth in verse 2. Um, there's a lot of... Uh, things that get stirred up because of this miracle, and it actually makes it to where Peter and John come before council, starting in chapter 4 of Acts. So, like, they're put on trial, basically, and although there was nothing that they could accuse them of that was actually wrong, according to the law, they, they just said, hey, we need you to stop talking about this. You, you, gotta, you gotta cool it with this Jesus talk, and you gotta stop talking about this resurrected Christ, right? And they're like, we're not going to do that, you know. So they, they, go back, they have a lot of back and forth. And then eventually, they, they have to release them. And that's what we see in verse 23. They're released. There, there's a, a wonderful um, perspective that we see from Peter and John where they're like, look, whether it's good in your eyes to do this, we, whatever, that doesn't matter to us. We're going we're gonna to obey God rather than men. 
And that, that's their perspective. In the face of punishment, uh, that, that's their perspective. And that, that's a really good example for us. But anyway, so they're released. They go and join the, the brothers and sisters, and they're all praising God together. They're all uh, praying, and it says that they are praising God, saying, Sovereign Lord, and they're just, they're just thanking God for everything. So that gets us down uh, mainly to verse 31. And so we're going to pick them in verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. I do want to make mention real quick, this sermon is not about the Holy Spirit, but I think it's important just to notice that they were speaking clear things that all coincided with the message that they had already heard, and they were all speaking basically the same thing. It was all about the word of God. No one was bringing like a new word that was just impressive or something like that. No one, no one individual is being recognized for, oh, you're speaking some language that no one's ever heard of, so like you keep talking and then tell us what, what you're saying. That they were just all like sharing in this wonderful confirmation of God's word. So then it says in verse 32, which is going to be where we pick up and spend most of our time. Acts 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This is very reminiscent of Acts 2. In Acts 2, after you have 3,000 at least that are saved, what do they do? They, they, they come together, and they all have all things in common. And then more people are saved, and the more people that are added, the more just there is in common somehow. See, the, the weird thing about that is the more people we add to our mix, like the less we have in common usually. But that's not what it was like for the early church. Like, they were able to overlook the things that they actually didn't have in common to give of themselves so they had all things in common. Um, we'll talk about that in a little bit, though. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now, what I want to talk about today is I want to talk about great grace working among us. Most translations say great grace was upon them all. I think there might be one or two translations that use the idea of working among them. We want to have great grace work among us. Now, what we don't have is we don't have a powerful testimony of eyewitness account of the resurrection. So in that way, we can't have great grace the way they did. Um, we don't have these some miraculous things that they had. So maybe we could say, well, we can't have that great grace. I don't think that's true, though. I, I think we can still have great grace that works among us because what, and I'll, I'll get to this in a little bit, I think there's three main things that lead to this being said, this great grace that's among them. Let, let's keep going in verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and was distributed each as he had need. Sorry, I forgot to put the scripture of it. If you don't have a Bible, there's the scripture. Sorry about that. So, that. so they laid at the apostles' feet as any had need in verse 35. And then we'll continue and do verse 36 and 37. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So there's great grace that is among them. Um, I don't think there's any way for us to try and like create God's grace in its fullness. 
among us. Like, we are not God. We, we, we can't do that. But what we can do is we can reflect God's grace in a similar way that they did. And I think there's a few components that, that are important to, to talk about. The first thing I want to notice is that what we see here is that the resurrection is everything for them. I mean, Jesus being raised from the dead is absolutely everything. Like, that's what grounds them. That's what motivates them. It's their hope. It's, it's the essence of their message. They do talk about Jesus and his life. They talk about his crucifixion. But, you know, the thing that really stands out that sets everything apart for them is that they believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, that he was witnessed by hundreds of people, and that he ascended to the Father, and that he's coming back. Jesus being raised from the dead is everything. If we want to have this great grace work among us, our very essence and the core of what unites us needs to be an understanding of the resurrection. The resurrection actually unifies us uniquely. See, we're united by, some, we're united by something that looks beyond this life. We're not united by something that we have in common in this life. Like, there, there are certain people here that I know I can go talk to about certain things. I have certain interests, and I could go to this person about that, this person about that. But those are all things that are, those are, all things that are worldly and not in a sinful way, but they unite us. But the resurrection is something that unites all those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ and have been baptized into his death and been raised to walk in newness of life. Now we have this connection that looks beyond this life. It's the only thing we really have that ignores everything around us and says we're still united. It's, it's, it uniquely unites us in that way. What it also does is it reminds us of God's grace. See, when we think about God's grace, we usually think of the cross because that was Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. But another thing that we should think about when we think of God's grace is the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. Because our hope is not in the cross only. Our hope is in the fact that Jesus was raised. Um, you know, in, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul actually talks about how if we aren't hoping and if we are or excuse me, if we're hoping in this resurrection and that's not real, then we're fools. We're absolute fools. What we're hoping in is that Jesus was raised from the dead. That, that's everything for us. And the last thing that I, I want to mention about this resurrection is that we need to reaffirm the resurrection regularly. Um, and here's what I mean by that. When I mean reaffirm, I had to look up if I... I had to look up if I was right to use that word or not. Um, what I mean is we need to remind one another of Jesus' resurrection. We need to remind one another of our hope that looks beyond this life. We do that in our conversations. Um, I need to do a better job about this, I'm, so I'm assuming that most of you need to do a better job about this. I talk about a lot of things that are happening in this life. I talk about future plans that are happening in the next few years and things I'm hoping for. I talk about the idea of family. I talk about the idea of taking trips and all, all these things. And, and we unite in these things. And it feels good. You know the thing that needs to cut through our conversations that we should remind each other regularly of? Our hope for the resurrection. That, that needs to permeate our conversations. And it might be awkward at first because we're not used to doing that. But be the awkward one in the conversation. It's like, oh, yeah, that's true. I know everything is going wrong, but, hey, isn't a great Christ coming back and all that's going to be taken away? It's like, that sounds weird initially, but we should start doing that. Um, I don't want to call him out, but I'm going to. Richard does this sometimes whenever he has, like, a, 
a problem like a body pain or something like that. He's like, it'll all be fixed in the resurrection. And it's something to kind of like laugh about, but it's real. And maybe that's a good way for, for us to like remind ourselves. We reaffirm the resurrection by doing that. You know, another thing we do is we reaffirm the resurrection by proclaiming Christ's death and resurrection. We do that by taking the Lord's Supper. We, we, we do that on the first day of the week, and one of the things that accomplishes is it gives us time to reaffirm that our hope is in Christ, that we are thankful for his death because it provides a way for us to be brought close to God, but we're also thankful that he was raised, that the tomb was empty. Those are the things we remember each week. So it's a good thing for us to do this. When we reaffirm his, his resurrection, it produces great favor and grace upon us because it reminds us of what we have already said we believe, that Christ is coming back and he will gather those that are his to God forever. It will remove all pain. There will be no, no need for tears and sorrow. Like all the bad stuff is taken away probably some of the things we think are good are taken away as well. And the things that are most purely good and godly are ours forever. If I were to ask you, what is the biggest motivator for you in life? Just think about that. What is the biggest motivator for you in life? How about another question? Just ask yourself this. What am I hoping for in life? Does that convict you? It convicts me. It convicts me because the answers to those things isn't Jesus is coming back. Not always, at least. Sometimes it's, it's other things that still sound good. And they even have some sprinkle of godliness and, and Christianity in them. What's my biggest motivator in life? Sometimes it's people. Sometimes it's family. Um, sometimes it's I just want to be known as a good person. That's got some sprinkle of Christianity in there, right? But it's the biggest motivator that, like, I'm just living with the end in view. I'm just living longing and eagerly awaiting Christ's return. Or how about what we're hoping for? Well, I'm hoping for a lot of things, if I'm being honest. Like, there's a lot of stuff I could, I could say I'm hoping for this, I'm hoping for that. Um, hoping to lose weight, hoping to get a, you know, whatever it is, you know? Um, Hoping that my car is okay. Hoping that I don't have to drop a bunch of money on something at the house. Uh, there's a lot of things we say we hope for. Um, people are hoping for kids right now. They're hoping for healthy pregnancies. I, I meant to mention this, but William, thanks so much for that prayer. I mean, I, I just it's one thing to pray about our whole group. It's another thing to go and individually pray about a lot of people. Um, I really appreciate that. We have things we're hoping for, but is our hope in those things? Or do, we or do we remember the temporary nature of all of those things? I, I think it's important for us to, to just remember and center on the resurrection. All right, so let's talk about how to create great grace. Here's how we create great grace. I, I didn't read the text that was up there from John uh, chapter 2 because um, we just don't have a lot of time to go through some of these things. But, but here, let's, let's go back to Acts 4. I think there's three things that really go into creating great grace among our group. The first thing is what we've just talked about. We need to remember the resurrection. Remembering the resurrection means a couple of things. It means that, that we remember it was confirmed by hundreds of people. At one point, it was 500 people at one time that saw Jesus 
in his resurrected body. He is the Christ, the Son of God. He is Lord, and he conquered death. And we need to remember that. He promised to come back, and now we're just waiting for him to come back. We need to remember that all we are, all we attain to, and all we experience now is nothing compared to what we're waiting for. So the first thing we need to do to create great grace among our group is to remember the resurrection, make sure our hope is in the resurrection, and remind, remind each other of that. But the, the second thing is we need to participate in Christian fellowship fully. So the, the first thing is unity. So if you go back and you look at verse 32, actually, what he says is that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Do you do that? <laughs> I mean, we get really childlike pretty quick when it comes to our things. No, that's mine, you know? Well, you can have it just for a little bit, but make sure you give it back, right? Because it's mine. Whether it's like a piece of Tupperware or whether it's something actually valuable. Maybe your Tupperware is very valuable, but whatever it is, we're like, no, that's mine, you know? I'll loan it, but you're going to have to replace it if you lose it or break it or something. And we, we know each other, and we love each other. These people, how long have they known each other? Like, these people were from all over Israel. They came together one place. They wind up sticking around because they're, they're um, taught the gospel. They don't know each other. These are thousands of people. And they're willing to say, nothing is my own. Everything I have is for everybody. Like, that is countercultural. But that, that's the mindset we need to have if we want to create great grace among our group. He says they're of one heart and one soul, so there's total unity. There's no selfishness. There's no concern for individual identity. I want, I want to make a side point here, and I hope it doesn't become a distraction, but I, there, I remember conversations where people would talk about like relationships, and they would say, I don't want to lose myself in my relationship, or I feel like I'm losing myself. I'm not going to totally, like, dog that idea, because I understand there is some good things in that. Um, you don't need to get to a point where you're like, I don't even know who I am. I can't even examine myself or whatever. Like, I get that. But do we realize that that's actually exactly what happened here? These people lose themselves in one another. They have one heart, one soul. It doesn't say one mind, but there's other texts that, that make that pretty clear. They're of one mind, unity of mind. So my thoughts, although they matter to me, I sacrifice them for the sake of your thoughts. What I want, I sacrifice for what you want. That, that's, what, that's what these people are involved in here. There's, there's a quote that I want to read from some doctor that is a proponent of the very thing that I'm saying I don't think we need to have. Um, and it says, when we are differentiated, we can follow our own directives, even if pressured by friends and family to reorient. We trust ourselves to be our best guide, although we are open and can readily take in input non-defensively. Most importantly, we never lose ourselves to another, but maintain our personal integrity. That's, that's not what the church is about, though. The church is about unity to the point of being uncomfortable. It's about unity to the point of sacrificing of ourself 
and maybe even feeling like it's very vulnerable. That's what Christian fellowship truly is. In God's family, we are one body, but individually members of it. It's very complex. We still have individual identity. But he says we're one body. These people in Acts 4 are strangers. They don't have long-term relationships, but we do. If they could do that, how much more can we do this? And it all comes back to if we remember that God has been so gracious to us that we can be joined together in one heart and one mind. And by the way, we're not really tied to the things in this life anyway because the thing that unites us is the fact that we know that Christ is coming back, so all this is going away anyway. Well, then I'm, I'm more ready to be united and to give up of myself. I'm more ready to shut my mouth and not impose what I want on you. The, the last thing I want to point out is that what, we, what also creates this great grace is when we sacrifice of ourselves for someone else. That sounds very similar to what I just said, but really I think what we're getting at here is love. It's, it's that true love that we're to have as a group. We sacrifice our thoughts, like I've already mentioned, but now let's talk about our things. We sacrifice our things. So it says that they, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds, like whatever it was, and they just laid it at the apostles' feet so they could distribute them. Billing, being willing to give up what I consider mine paves the way for great grace in this group. It allows for people to be provided for physically, and it also allows for people to be provided for spiritually. Um, see, when we give of ourselves, we're not just meeting someone's need in the moment, but we're showing an attitude that confirms we believe that it's not about this life, and that helps that person spiritually as well. It helps set their minds on the resurrection. It takes away their worry and their burden. That it might be distracting them from following Christ because of these physical stressors and these physical worries. When we meet each other's needs, we're accomplishing two things. Providing for them physically, which we, we love them, so we want to do that. But we remove a, a stumbling block and a potential burden for them to focus on following Christ. So we, we provide for them spiritually as well. So now what I want to do is I actually want to show that when we don't do these things, it has a really dangerous result. See, without doing these things, instead of great grace, there's actually terror and fear. So in, in Acts chapter 5, we got this famous couple, Ananias and Sapphira. I get them confused with Aquila and Priscilla sometimes because their names just are so similar. Very different people, <laughs> very different stories, and very different results. Acts 5, chapter, uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 1, a man, so this is right after, oh, they have all this in common, they're sharing all this stuff, and there's this great person that is, like, kind of set apart. Look at Barnabas, he did so great. Now, let's go to Ananias. Ananias with his wife, they sell a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. 
The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at, at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. My point is not to, like, scare you into giving more money, okay? I just want to make sure that's clear. Um, I don't think you're going to be struck down dead for not giving everything that you could give. My point is to point out that God allows for great grace to be upon the, the group of Christians when everyone participates in, in this giving and sacrifice and unity. But when they don't, he reminds them that that's wrong and great fear comes upon them. But the truth is that God is glorified, whether it's great fear or great grace. Like the church keeps growing. More people that are outside of the church see what's happening in the church and they hear the gospel and they are converted as well. So God is glorified either way. You know, it's actually interesting. I, I read that Sapphira's name means beautiful in Aramaic. You know what Ananias' name means? God is gracious. Were they living out their names, especially, especially Ananias? No. Th this is all a story about grace. But they rejected that, that conformity to what God's grace looks like. And instead, they wanted to keep back from themselves. And now there's great fear among everyone. They're terrified. The beauty and graciousness of God was seen in the continued blessing of God upon the church and the shared of all that they had. So God wanted to make sure, it seems, that he protected his church from this attitude. See, it, it's not just outside attacks of false teaching that we need to watch out for. It's inward selfishness that we also, also need to watch out for. <laughs> Great fear is good for everyone else except for us, right? Like if I'm the one that's not participating in this, then great fear is not good for me. I need to be fearful because punishment is coming for me. If I don't give it myself, if I'm too tied to this life and I'm not hoping in the resurrection, there needs to be a great fear that I feel. But great grace is good for all. So either way, God is glorified. So don't ignore unity, charity, and resurrection hope. Unity, that we have all things in common. Unity, that we are one mind. That I prefer you, we, we talked about honoring, uh, I guess it was a few weeks ago, that we honor one another. But also charity, that I'm willing to give. Not just willing to give, like, oh, I'm just on the ready, and you just have to call me or text me. But, like, I'm making it known. That we, that we make it known to one another. You need something? You need something? I, I'm, I'm here. I'll do whatever. Whatever I can. Now, there are some details about giving and not giving to the point where now you're in need and things like that. But I don't believe most of us have a problem with that. I like to remind myself of that so that I feel better about not giving a lot. I'm like, oh, well, remember, Paul does say in 2 Corinthians... Don't give and then become needy, so i got to keep a lot back. No, that's not what he's saying. We don't do that. So we need to make sure that we, 
remind each other, and that we participate in unity, charity, and resurrection hope. Uh, what I want to do at the end here is I want to look at the, the fruit from this great grace. Now, we don't see the fruitfulness in Acts 4 or Acts 5 necessarily, although we know that the church continues to grow. But there's two texts that I want to focus on that focus on unity and love. And I think that when we participate in this the way we're supposed to, there's great fruitfulness from it. So in John 13, verse 35, Jesus says that it's not a new commandment he's giving them, but he's saying that you need to love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, when we have this love, this shared love and sacrificial love for one another, we prove to be Jesus' disciples. That's the fruit that Jesus says comes from us loving one another. And then in John 17, 20 and 21, he says, I do not ask, this is in his prayer to, to God, uh, right before he is about to be crucified. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's been praying about the apostles. Now he turns to his prayer to not just the apostles, but all who will believe. That they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. What does Jesus want for us to accomplish with our unity? That the world may believe in him. Like, sometimes we think that it's through a convincing argument. Sometimes it's like a, someone uses a certain passage, and I'm like, I've got a counterpoint for that. And this is going to make them believe, Right? Or let me just walk you through a logical exercise that brings you to the point where you're like, oh, yeah, I, I, guess, I guess I do need to have some sort of faith in something. And then now I got you. Now let me turn to Jesus and say your faith needs to be in him. That's not what Jesus says. What he says is that when we are in total unity that reflects the unity that the Godhead has, that Jesus has with the Father, that the world might believe that God sent Jesus. So we need to show this unity and love. It proves that we are disciples, and it might just lead to people becoming believers themselves. So here's the wrap-up. Here's the conclusion. I have two questions for you, okay? This comes from the verse that we've been looking at, uh, or the verses. Acts 4, 32, and also 33. Only 32 is up here. But here's the two questions. Does this describe our group? Are we of one heart and one soul? We have everything in common. Yes and no. Sometimes yes. Sometimes I don't know. Maybe not everything in common. The commonality has nothing to do with what we actually have in common. The commonality is whatever is mine is yours and whatever your whatever is yours is mine. Not that I'm going to claim it and say, give me this. I'm just saying, like, that's the everything in common that, that he's talking about. I think in some ways it does describe this group. But I think we can improve. I think we try and have one heart and, and be of one mind. We have an openness of you can, you can share what you are thinking, and you're not going to be totally, like, kicked out the door just because you have a different perspective. But it's not just about the sharing, it's about the sacrificing. 
that that's the main point I, I'm getting from Acts 4 is it's about the sacrificing. So maybe maybe I just don't speak up sometimes because <laughs> I'm sacrificing my opinion for the sake of, of you. Or maybe I don't like speak up and like act like I have some authority because we're supposed to be of one heart and one soul and one mind. And as far as having everything in common, like hospitality is one way that we can have all things in common. We can share in everything. We can be hospitable to one another. But another way is the more invested we are in each other's lives, the more we communicate with one another, the more we will know needs. I understand that there are some people that have closer connections to other people than, than I do and vice versa, right? So that, that just is, that's just how it is. But when our, when our uh, interest is sacrificed for the greater interest of the resurrection and the fact that we will be gathered together in heaven one day, then I don't care if I think you're a total weirdo for liking whatever it is you like and you think I'm, you know, dummy for liking whatever it is I like, we can still truly invest in one another. But I gotta be able to like look past the stuff in this life. Here's the next question. I won't talk as much about this question as I did the last one. What can we do so the great grace is found here? Well, the great grace that we see in Acts 4 is based on three things, it seems to me. Total unity, sacrificial love, and reminding each other of the resurrection. That's what we can do. So turn it on yourself. What can you do so that great grace is found among your brethren here? It might be that, well, I don't see anything like tangible I can do but I see how I can start changing my mind and therefore then changing my communication. Um, whatever it is that, that you need to do, we need that. Because they had all things in common because all of them participated in this. And when they didn't all participate in it, God struck down Ananias, he struck down Sapphira, and there was great fear. We don't want to have great fear among our group. We want to have great grace that is shared. Um, if you are here and you are not a Christian yet, you have not become a believer that Jesus is the Son of God and he died for your sins, if you have not repented of your sins, if you not confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and set your faith and trust in him, and I talked about earlier the resurrection, if you have not been baptized into Christ, then we want to help you. We want great grace to be spread here. But also, if you are here and you're already a believer, maybe you're even a member here, and you realize some things you need to do to change, we need to do that. Because we, we need to have great grace among this group. Scott's going to have a, a closing song, and then we're going to wrap up and we'll have a break. If you need to respond to the gospel, if you need prayers from this group, if you have spiritual needs, we want to try the best we can to meet those needs by looking to God and helping you. Uh, make that known as we sing this next song.